welcome to the sermon podcast of Orchardville Baptist Church in beautiful Moultrie, Georgia. We're so glad that you've chosen to listen in with us today. It is our hope that you will be encouraged by the Word of God and find growth in your everyday life. For more information about our church or for more digital resources, be sure to check us out on the web at OrchardvilleBaptist.com. And now for today's sermon. Jake and ladies for leading us tonight. I want to ask you, church, if you will take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 5. Deuteronomy chapter 5. We are walking through uh, the book of Deuteronomy, and as I shared uh, when we first started, we would be. Again, probably not looking at every single verse through Deuteronomy, but uh, today we're going to be jumping into chapter 5 and uh, looking at a very familiar passage of Scripture uh, as uh, Moses begins to recall looking back and reminding the people of the Ten Commandments. So I'm going to ask, if you will, if you're willing and able to stand with your Bibles open, in honor and in reverence of God's word in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 1. And Moses called all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and judgments which I speak in your hearing today, that you may learn them and be careful to observe them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. The Lord did not make this covenant with our fathers, But with us, those who are here today, all of us who are alive, the Lord talked with you face to face on the mountain from the midst of the fire. I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord, for you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up the mountain, he said. Did not go up the mountain, he said. Verse 6, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves any, make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. It is it, In it you shall do no work, you nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your ox, nor your donkey, nor any of your cattle, nor any, your stranger, who is within your gates that your male servant that and I'm sorry and your female servant may rest as well as you and remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt 
And the Lord your God brought you out from there by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we love you and thank you for your mercy and your grace. And God, you are so good to us. God, help us, Lord, to live lives that uh, reflect that we understand your grace and mercy. That we are thankful that we walk in obedience with you. Not partial obedience, but full obedience. God, help us to be found faithful to you in every area. And Lord, as we uh, have come to this point tonight, I thank you for the the music and the time we've already had to praise you and and to reflect upon you. And God, now may uh, your spirit teach us truth from your word. I pray again, Lord, tonight for salvation for anyone who is listening who may be lost. But God, for every believer, draw us closer to you, Lord, that we might be more like Jesus. I ask now that you preach this message, Lord, that I would decrease and you increase, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. Tonight, as we walk through these first few commandments, Moses is reviewing the commandments that was previously given to the previous generation. Uh, The previous generation that came out of Egypt were giving these commandments at Mount Sinai. These are not all the commandments that God will give his people. But they are the ones that the rest of the commandments will be based off of. This will be the foundation, you might say. These ten commandments, or as in the Hebrew, they're referred to as the ten words. These ten words or commandments are broken into two primary groups. The first four deal with uh, understanding and our relationship with God. The next six deal with our relationship with each other. Now tonight, uh, I'm going to try and learn a lesson that that was taught to me several years ago, that you don't have to cover all ten commandments in one sermon. It's okay to break them up. Amen. All right. Uh, so tonight we're just going to look at this challenge that, that God gives through Moses. Moses issues a challenge to the people here in these first few verses. And then we're going to look at these first four uh, commandments tonight. So let's look first off at this challenge uh, that is given in verses 1 through 6. And one of the things that you'll notice about this challenge first off is that it's very familiar. Uh, look what it says there in verse 1. And Moses called all Israel. Okay. Uh, What he's about to tell them is not just going to be for the priest. It's not just going to be for the leaders or the Levites. It's going to be for all of Israel. All who belong to this covenant. All of the nation of Israel is going to have to follow this. So Moses called all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the judgments which you, I'm sorry, which I speak in your hearing today, that you may learn them and be careful to observe them. As he addresses them in this challenge, we see that they are to learn these commandments and be careful to follow them. The word here in the Hebrew, remember, it means involves more than just hearing a noise. It means acting on what you hear. It's like telling your child to go do something and they don't do it. What do you say? Don't, did you hear me when I told you? I expected you to do something in response. So here, this word, it involves doing what we hear. He says, hear, O Israel, the statutes are just what God has said is right and wrong, which I'm speaking to your hearing today. They will know what God's word says. They will have no excuse. There's a lot of times people that you, you know, feel like they, they say, well, I don't know what the word of God says or what God has said about the matter. Uh, the nation of Israel is going to know exactly what God said. 
They're going to hear the word. It's going to be repeated to them over and over again. Uh, there, there's people today that are followers of Christ who, who again, uh, don't study the word of God, so they don't know what God's word says. But, but here he says, you know, I speak to you hearing that you're going to know it. So notice he says that you may learn it. Uh, to learn them means to learn by exercising. You know, it's one thing for someone to, to show you something. I, th- I think about learning how to tie a tie. I remember my dad trying to tell me that. I know now you can look on YouTube and they can show you how to do it. But my dad showed me how to tie that tie. But you know how I really learned how to tie a tie? Getting in front of a mirror and doing it. You know, just constantly doing over and over again. I finally, I got it down to the point now I can't tie it on anybody else. And if you ask Mary Grace, I can't tie a tie now. She's figured out how to tie ties. And uh, from Mr. Murray, anyway, that's a whole other sermon. But... Um, <laughs> Mr. Murray's a good man, amen. But um, uh, anyway, let me move on. So the, the bottom line is that that word means to learn by practicing it, doing it, okay? And, and he, he goes on to say, and be careful about it. That word is careful is used throughout the book of Deuteronomy. It is a word as you see repeated over and over again, and it means to keep or protect something. Be careful that you are learning this and that you are careful to observe that. It means to carry it out. Again, Moses has already been using the same phrasing, the same wording already, and he'll continue to throughout this book. Uh, They are to learn it. They are to be careful and guard it and make sure they are carrying it out. Throughout this book, he uses those phrases, and these people will have no excuse because Moses will hammer it home to them what they need to be doing. And again, as we will see in the upcoming chapters, that Jewish parents were to teach their children when they got up, when they went along their way, when they sat down to eat, and when they went to bed at night, they were constantly to be reciting the word of God of them, teaching the word of God of them, so that they would be able to practice it and recite it themselves, and they would know it and be careful to follow it. But they would have no excuse in a day with no cell phones, no books, and even the ability to own their own scroll. They were to know the word of God and to practice the word of God through reciting it and and memorizing it. Now we see here that not only is it familiar, but it's also particular, this challenge. Notice there in verses 2 and 3, the Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb or Mount Sinai. And the Lord did not make this covenant with our fathers, but with us, those who are here today all of us who are alive. Uh, not only was what Moses and his challenge familiar in some of the words, but also particular as he talks about a particular covenant. The covenant that was made at, at Mount Sinai. Remember, God has already made several covenants already. He has made covenants with, with Noah. He made a covenant with, with Abraham about a land grant and some other things, you might say. But here, he's talking about a specific covenant God has made. And when he says in verse 3, the Lord did not make this covenant with our fathers. Now, when he talks about fathers there, there, he's talking about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Not their immediate uh, fathers from the previous generation because they literally were the ones who were adults when the covenant came. He's talking about those those forefathers. He made it with them, the ones who came up out of Egypt, the ones who were adults, as Moses is talking here in chapter 5, were just children or teenagers at the time. But, but they had heard that covenant. He says, but with us who are here today, all of us who are alive, here we see that this, this covenant that he is making is with those who are alive today. Again, this is corporate language, okay? What he's saying is God has made a covenant with a people. And that's significant to understand. It's not an individual. It's with a group of people, okay? 
And that's very significant. It's, it's very important to understand and make that distinction. So uh, this covenant is made with this people. It's particular, but it's also serious. Look at verses 4 and 5. The Bible says, The Lord talked with you face to face in the mountain from the midst of the fire. And I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord, for you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up up, up the mountain, he said. And again, he begins to go into the commandments there, but it, literally what he says, the Lord spoke to you face to face. It does not mean that they saw God and that they did not see his image. They did not see an image of God. And that's one of the things that he will stress in, in our text that, and he's already stressed in the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, God is not a, an image. He is a spirit. So they did not see again an image. It simply refers to the personal contact that God had with them. Uh, God came right to them and he spoke to them through that, 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 uh, that cloud and that fire. And as they heard that voice, remember they got scared and they didn't want to hear the voice. So Moses had to act as a, as a mediator between them because they were scared of the voice of God. They were scared of that, that fire and the rumbling that took place on that mountain as God spoke to them. And the Bible says they were afraid. You know, as I was reading that, thinking about that, you know, there's not a bad thing having a healthy fear of God. It's not a bad thing. We live in a day and time when people don't fear God at all. And you know, God is a, is a holy God and he's going to do what he says. Uh, and again, you've heard me use this illustration numerous times. Uh, there were a lot of times growing up when I, I did the right thing because I didn't want my daddy to find out. Okay, Not because my heart was right to do the right thing. I just didn't want to get in trouble for it. And, and sometimes our heart may not be where we wished it was. But we know when God said something, we need to obey it and have that healthy fear of God, understanding that God means what he says. We see here that uh, this um, challenge, the, it is familiar, it's particular, it's serious, but it's also clear. Notice here in verse 6, it says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You know, God is not defined in some abstract sense he is he tells them very clearly who this is the one who brought them out of Egypt this great act of redemption this deliverance should have been enough for them to want to serve him and it reminds me today when we think about today the great act of redemption for us is what the cross at Calvary him dying for us taking our place being raised again saving us from the wrath of almighty God is that not enough to serve him with everything in our life. And for the people. They need to know from the get go. They need to serve God. Have complete allegiance to him. Because he's the one who delivered them. He is the one who rescued them. You know for the Jews each year. They would celebrate the Passover. That Passover was a reminder. Of what God had done for them. It was a time to, for them to reflect and to be thankful for that great act of salvation. And throughout the Old Testament, you see that act of redemption repeated over and over again. And we as believers today, we look at the Lord's Supper in that same way, a time when we sit back and we reflect upon the body and the blood of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. Again, uh, there ought to be a, a healthy fear of, of God. But you know what? When it comes to serving God, it ought to be because we're just so thankful for what he has done. We ought not see him as some cosmic killjoy who is looking to bat you over the head with a big black Bible or some bat. He is someone who loves us and we ought to be thankful for all that he has done for us and, and want to serve him with great appreciation and thanksgiving. 
So Moses is reminding this generation, this new generation of what God has done. He is challenging them. And now we come to verse 7. He begins to, to list the commandments. In, in, in these ten commandments, we see these are uh, the, the basis for the law. Uh, what we're going to learn some things here about God in particular. And because of that, they are timeless and, and universally accepted. God's people should be willing to embrace what God says here about himself. We see here in these first four uh, commandments what we learn about God. We learn so much about him. In the first commandment there in verse 7, what we see in the first commandment is acknowledging there is one Lord. There is one Lord. The Bible says in verse 7, you shall have no other gods before me. This commandment, this, this verse here, it shows the uniqueness of the Lord, how he excludes any other gods or anyone who would want to put a, a God up there with him. Israel's faith is to be based and solely built upon trust and faith in the Lord, the one true and living God. When he says no other gods before me, that means against me or in my presence. None are to be there. No other gods. And because he mentions other gods, it doesn't mean that there actually is other gods. It's just that people consider there to be other gods. The Greeks had their pantheon of gods. And sometimes you would go in some temples and they'd have multiple idols there. They're different gods all there in a row talking about how great they are. You could go into Egypt and there was a pantheon of gods there. And he is saying, listen, there are no other gods. And you are not to recognize any of it. He expects total 100% allegiance should go to Yahweh and him alone. And whenever the Israelites begin to embrace or even acknowledge that there might be other gods, it always leads to trouble. When they go on that promised land, one of the reasons they are to remove everybody is because God says if you don't, those gods that you leave around, those people you leave around will become a snare to you. He's saying you need, you're going to need to get rid of them because God's not going to put up with it. He will tolerate no rivals. Even today, we as believers, we are reminded by the words of Jesus Christ that we're not to have two masters. Jesus said you can't have two of them because you'll love one and you'll hate the other. And, and the way that happens is one of them will get our full attention and the other one won't. The one that doesn't is obviously the one that we hate or love less. So he gives this first commandment. It is about acknowledging there is only one Lord or one God. And then we see the second commandment in verses 8 through 10. And that is abstaining from worshiping idols. To abstain from worshiping idols. Uh, notice in verse 8, they're to make no image. The Bible says in verse 8, You shall make, not make for yourselves a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. He's saying they're not to make any kind of physical image of God. It will not be tolerated. And here God specifically tells them not to do that. Now, do y'all remember the first major commandment they broke? Was that one. God has spoke to them. Moses goes up on the mount for 40 days. He comes back down and what happened? The people began to pressure Aaron because they didn't know if Moses was coming back or not. So Moses said, okay, uh, uh, i tell you what, give me all your, your jewelry. And he, he takes all the jewelry and he throws it into a fire. And remember what he said? This is what came out, a calf. Isn't that something? A calf comes out. And, and, and he says, what do you understand? This is the God who delivered you. Here's an image. Here's something you can gather around. 
Instead of listening to what God says, says you're not to gather around some image that you can create of anything. You, you are simply to worship me. Uh, the way that they describe this three-tier uh, view of the universe here, of, of heaven and the earth beneath and the water beneath, that's just how the Easterners spoke in that day and time. But basically saying, anything that you can see, do not make an image of that and think it's me or any other God. You, you simply cannot do that. Make no image. And in verse 9, the first part of verse 9, he says, make no worship to them. The Bible says in verse 9, you shall not bow down to them nor serve them. Now, that term, verb bow down, it gives the idea of worship or submission. Uh, the word to serve here, it means to work. Again, both those words could be translated worship. It's like they're intertwined. And what he's saying is don't bow down or recognize them as sovereign over you as your God. And do not offer any work or service or worship to them. That is reserved for God and God alone. But I do think it's interesting that in the Hebrew language, whenever God talks about worship, it involves doing something. It involves submission it involves recognizing an authority, and that's what God is. He is the authority in our life. We should submit to that authority, not to resist it or fight it, but simply follow him and trust him. They are a redeemed people that God delivered, and they are to worship and to serve no one else or no other thing but Yahweh and him alone. I came across this quote where this one person said, In days when the idea of worship has lost a good deal of its true meaning, these verbs remind us that one of the most important aspects of worship is that the worshiper displays an attitude of submission to God. In that attitude, he is stripped of all his self-will and surrenders himself to God who is his sovereign Lord. Submission is like a dirty word to a lot of people. And again, there's people all the time that will make the comment, well, I'll tell you what I'm going to do, or, or you're not going to tell me what to do. God better be able to tell you what to do. God better be able to humble you. If not, he's not your God. That's what it means for him to be your Lord, is that you submit to him. Even if, you, if we come to something in the scripture, and again, there's, there's things in scripture that, you know, are, are tough. And maybe in our flesh, we don't want to follow it, but that's tough. If, if, if God is truly our Lord, we will submit to his authority. He has earned that position, and it's his position, and we are to submit to him. So they're not to give, not to make any image, not to make any worship to him, and they shouldn't be making any mistake about this. Notice what he says in the last part of this verse. He says, for I am the Lord your, I am, for I am the Lord your God. I am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity or the sin of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations. Of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Here, uh, they need to remember and never forget that God is a jealous God. He will not tolerate worship for anyone else from that is that is that belongs to Him. Uh, and again, as we think about Him being a jealous God, as those would again practice sin by ignoring His commandments worshiping others it says here that he will again visit visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children of third and fourth generations and again that's a troubling thing for a lot of people to think about but again we need to understand the the context of a jewish home 
uh, in a Jewish home, people didn't grow up and, and uh, Lord didn't grow up in his home and then uh, find a wife to marry and then go find a, a piece of property to go live on and build a house and start a family. Uh, what they did was they just added on to the house he grew up in and, and they lived there. Okay. The woman would come to the, to the, 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 the man's house and live there with his family. That's how it worked. And again, we could, uh, I wish I had time to go into that whole image of Jesus uh, talking about going, preparing a place for the bride and all those Jewish traditions. But, but, but in essence, what we see here is that in most Jewish homes, you had multiple generations living together. Not in the same neighborhood, not in the same block, but in the same home. Connected by rooms that would be built on. And you see a patriarch in that family, the leader in that family, choosing to reject God. Guess what's going to happen? It's going to influence his children and his grandchildren and his great-grandchildren. Why? Because of his sin. Because he's chosen to reject what God has said, God sees it as hating him. You may say, well, I, I don't think that person hated God. Well, it don't really matter what you think. God says it's hating me. <laughs> Either we love him and we obey him or we don't obey him and we, because we hate him. That's the only uh, 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 explanation that God gives here. And those who do that are going to affect sometimes multiple generations because of their sin, because of the influence that they carry. But notice verse 10. The Bible says here in verse 10, but showing mercy to thousands. Now, what's the thousands referring to? Don't miss the comparison here. You'll, we'll learn something about God here. Uh, and when it comes to judging because those families are all together and the influence it carries, that sin can be passed down for three or four generations. And we all know it could possibly go further. But then when those who are faithful to him, those who are faithful, he says it can go on a thousand generations, the mercy of God. Isn't that awesome? See, God doesn't want to judge. He wants to show mercy. And what's so fascinating about this is he says, but showing mercy, that word mercy I believe is the most important Hebrew word in the entire Old Testament Bible is the Hebrew word hesed. Many times it's translated as loving kindness, but it refers to his covenant keeping love. It's the closest thing we have in Hebrew to the, the Greek word for, for grace, his grace that he shows. He shows mercy to thousands of those who love him and, and who loves him. Those who obey him. You see, remember, just like with Jesus in the New Testament, there is no such thing as a touchy-feely thing when it comes to love and God or Jesus. It's all about obedience. If we obey what he says, that shows that we love him. If we don't obey him, we do not love him. Same thing, Old Testament, New Testament. Again, those who, he will show mercy to a thousand of those who love me, notice, and keep my commandments. Not just the ten, but also uh, all of God's commands. Again, this is a wonderful, wonderful verse of Scripture. As he is talking here about abstaining from worshiping idols, what a great promise. I don't know about you, but I don't know how long it's going to be before Jesus comes back. I, I know that you've heard all your life that, that um, we're living in the last days. And, and yes, technically we are living in the last days since the book of Acts. We've been living in the last days that, that, that Jesus could come back at any moment. I really do. I, I believe with all my heart that uh, Christ is going to come back soon and very soon. I, I don't know when that is. But, you know, he could. He could choose to come back a thousand years from now. A thousand years from now. Wouldn't it be awesome 
or one of my prayers is that I could live such a life that would impact the next thousand generations of my family. I mean, God's saying here that those who love him, they live a lasting impact. And that's just one thing I want to do is pass on my faith to my children and one day uh, possibly grandchildren or great-grandchildren. I want them to know the Lord, that keeping him involves experiencing that hesed love that God has for those. The last thing I ever want to do is lead them down a path that they would think they don't have to follow the word of God. That the word of God is insignificant or the word of God is just something you do on Sunday or just some slice of your life. It's not. If we belong to the God, he, he oversees everything that we do. And when that happens, it shows our love for him and he showers his mercy upon those. What, a, what an incredible promise that we all know that the nation of Israel will not continue to love the Lord. They will go after other gods and as a result, it will cost them greatly. Uh, this weekend, I've been, I've been reading a book, I'm almost through with it, and it's a book about the kingdom of God. Uh, just how the kingdom of God, how we can experience the kingdom of God now. And um, the author made an interesting thing. I saw it yesterday when I was reading, and I, I thought this would be great to put in this sermon. But he was talking about idolatry and how we practice idolatry today. Because, you know, everybody would say, well, yeah, I, I know there's only one God, Brother Robert. I know there's no other gods, and, and I'm not going to make any image. You know, I'm not going to make some image and bow down to it and worship that. I'm just going to worship God. But he said, you know, in a very practical way, when we think about these two commandments and, and not worshiping God and worshiping idols, he said we do that four ways today in our society. He said when we worship something or someone other than God. Now, that's pretty simple, isn't it? When we, when we worship something or something other than God, it's idolatry. And we put something as a rival to God. When we seek security in something or someone other than God. We have committed idolatry and we have put something as a rival to God. He is the one we look to for our security. He is the one that we are trusting in. When we desire someone or something more than God, anything that becomes such a passion for us that it overrides our passion for God, it leads to idolatry. Folks, we have, we got to watch ourselves. Amen. That can happen to anybody. Don't you think it can't happen to you? Yes, it can. It can happen without, without even realizing it. And then he said this. He said, setting our affections elsewhere by being unwilling to part with something or someone for God. You know, Jesus said, you've got to love me more than your family. And there are some things some people just won't give up for God. And those are ways that we do that. And, and, and boy, that just really convicted me. So um, we see these two commandments. And please do not think these are just things that the Israelites dealt with. We still deal with these things today. We can't have any rival for God. And we can't be making anything an image before him. Um, notice with me in verse 11, we see the third command. That is honoring God's name. He says in verse 11, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. It is forbidden to carelessly use the name of God. Matter of fact, the Jews got so upset about that and worried about it, they gave God a new name. Adonai is how they translated it many times because they didn't want to use his name the wrong, Yahweh the wrong way. 
But whenever he talks about using his name the wrong way, one person is translated this way. You shall not lift up the name of Yahweh, your God, without reason as a means to accomplish some kind of ill-advised or unworthy objective. I I tell you, uh, I always knew you shouldn't use the Lord's name in vain. And all my life I've heard people use it in vain. And I used to not think a whole lot about that. And God began to do work in this old boy's life uh, around 20 some odd years ago and really getting in the word. And I remember coming across this and thinking, you know what? It is a big deal. Somebody takes God's name in vain. You know, we're talking to the God of this universe universe, and we better not be flippant when we do. He is someone who has opened up access to, to him through his son, Jesus Christ. What a great privilege. And we should not be belittling his name or bringing his name into something that is ill-advised or unworthy. He says here in this text that he says, I will not hold him guiltless who does that. He says that person will not go unpunished. God will discipline that person. They will not be free. They will not be innocent from it. It is a sin in God's eyes. That's a big deal, church. Now, again, we think about that, and you may say, well, Brother Robert, I don't ever take God's name in vain. Well, here's what my preacher preached about 20 years ago that got my attention on this text. He said, you know, that um, we're not to take his name in vain, but we also better be careful when we call ourselves his children and we don't live it out. Because, see, his name represents his character and who he is. And we call ourselves children of God and we don't act like children of God. Are we not taking his name in vain? We're trying to attach his name to us and we are flippantly living in any old kind of way we want to and not in the character in which he has called us to. When we call ourselves a Christian, which literally means a little Christ, and when we're not coming anything like that, are we not taking his name in vain? Are we flippantly trying to apply it to ourselves without living to the standard by which uh, the Bible gives for using that? Again, we can't be perfect. Only Jesus is Jesus. Only God is God. But we ought to be seeking to try to live like him. We ought to seek to try and live uh, that life that is, that is sinless. Um, you know, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, Jesus said, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. As they see us and how we behave and how we act, they give glory to God. You know why? Because we've taken on his name and we act like him. We must be careful not to take his name in vain by honoring his name. But then lastly, we see this fourth commandment, and that is a commandment about observing the Sabbath. Notice in verses 12 through 15, he says, Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Uh, When we think about this word Sabbath, it's a Hebrew word that means to stop, to cease, or rest. That's what it means. It is the last day of the calendar. It's our Saturday is what it is. That was the day they were to rest. And it goes back, the meaning, to Genesis chapter 2, where God created in six days and rested on the seventh day. He did not rest because he was tired. He he gave us an example. Uh, He was done, so he stopped. When they were giving the law, at Horeb and here, this renewal at Beth Peor as, as, as Moses is talking to them about the Sabbath and the proper way to observe it, what we find is that in Exodus and Deuteronomy, this Sabbath takes on a, a new meaning, a new nuance to it. It didn't just mean to stop, but there is a connection to the fact that they were slaves, that they had been redeemed, that this is a not just a rest, but of celebration and reflection 
on what God has done. He says here to observe it. That means to be careful to notice to keep it holy, to keep it separate. This is not an ordinary day for the Jewish people. It is a day that there were actually uh, things they could not do. When God gives them the manna for those 40 years, he gives them manna, what, six days on the Sabbath day. There was no manna for them to collect. All the cooking, all they were going to do, they had to do it the day before because they could not do it on that day. How were they to keep it holy? He says there in verse 13 and 14, by not working. He says, six days you shall labor and do all your work. On the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. And in it you shall do no work, you nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your ox, nor your donkey, nor any of your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. So even their family and even their servants, even their animals were to rest on that day. Uh, they gives them six days to work, and then that seventh day was rest. You know, when God quit, he wasn't tired, okay? And again, there's some people who can work six, seven, eight, nine, ten days in a row and not be tired. But again, our bodies need that rest. They need physical, but they also need spiritual rest. Even their servants weren't supposed to work. They, they were, nobody was to do any kind of work. And why? Because in verse 15, we see here they were to remember. Notice this. And here's what makes it, it makes it more than just to rest. And remembering that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. They would remember that. And the Lord, your God, brought you out from there by a mighty hand with an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord, your God, commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. As they were to rest, they were also to reflect upon the fact that they too used to be slaves. And God delivered them. It's a time of thanking God for deliverance and focusing on him. But also when they remembered where they came from, it was a whole lot easier to treat other people like they should. It was a whole lot easier to treat their own servants the right way and to give them rest because of what they had experienced. Now, church, what we, we see in the New Testament is that nine of the Ten Commandments are repeated in some form in the New Testament. The only one that's not is this one, the Sabbath day. Why is this particular command not put in the New Testament? Well, there's three reasons why. One, it was Jewish. It was for this particular uh, uh, covenant. It was the Sabbath day was a special sign between Israel and the Jewish people. And according to Psalm 147, it was not given to any other nation. It was given to the Jewish people. Secondly, Sunday becomes a pretty big day for Christians. The, the first day of the week becomes a big day for Christians. Jesus Christ arose when? Not on the Sabbath. He arose on that first day of the week, on Sunday. When the church was born, it was born on Pentecost Sunday. It, it's a new week. This is a new covenant. We are new creations. And now the day of worship for believers, when most of us observe it, is on Sunday. And even then, we're not commanded to serve on Sunday. It's just when it's easier for all of us. We live in what is called a Judeo-Christian nation, sort of. <laughs> At one day it was. Where we have the Monday through Friday work week and the weekends off. It is most convenient for us to gather on Sunday. And that's why we meet on Sunday. Hey, if all of y'all were working right now, 
There ain't no sense in me coming here and talking to empty pews. <laughs> Does that make sense? And, and you know what? That brings me to my third point, is that the reason why we don't do that is because of a lack of freedom. Whenever Jesus Christ came to this earth, the Jewish people were under Roman rule. They were no longer a theocracy. You see, Moses is talking to a group of people. Had they just obeyed God, they would march into the promised land and they would live under a theocracy where God was their king, where God's law ruled the day. And if they want to say nobody's working on the Sabbath day, nobody's going to work on the Sabbath day. But when you're under the rule of a foreign empire, things change. And God knew that. God knew that people would not be able to stop everything on that Sabbath day. They just need to worship when they could. Slaves need to worship when they could. Throughout the Roman Empire, the church primarily for the first 100, 150 years is made up primarily of slaves. Slaves can't just take a day off of work to go worship. It didn't happen that way. They would either get up early in the morning and gather before work or they would meet after work at night and try to meet on Sunday whenever they could get, get, get there to do it. In Colossians, we are told that what day you worship should never be a test of your spirituality. Never should you be judged by what day. The Bible tells us to meet and to gather. And some people can do that on Sunday and some can't. But uh, the main point for us as believers when we take this Old Testament command and apply it today is that there needs to be a day whenever it works for you. Because again, you may have to work on Sunday. Many of you in this room have had to do that. But when we have that time, when we reflect upon the Lord, our bodies do need rest. If your body doesn't get rest, it will wear out quicker than it should. We need that time to spiritually rest and reflect. We need that time when we can gather with other believers to be encouraged in the word. That's what Paul's been talking about throughout 1 Corinthians there. When they gathered, it wasn't for the betterment. It was for the worse. What should have been happening is they went through a rough day all week being around pagans and lost people. And it's rough at work. But when they come to church, it'll be a place, boy, it's just like a, a fresh cold water just being splashed on them. Just a cool breeze being refreshed. Hearing from God's word, being challenged and encouraged uh, by believers. They needed that. And it wasn't happening in Corinth. And it should be happening in our churches the main thing we need to know about this particular commandment is that it needs to be, there needs to be a time of rest and reflection on the Lord. You see, church, we are saved by grace and not by works and not by rules. But understand this, God has saved you and I to work. He has given us rules. He has given us commandments to follow. Following those things do not save you, nor do they cause God uh, to love you, okay? You, we love God. We serve him because we love God. He saves us by his grace. We are a new creation in Christ, and if we have been, we will see his commandments differently. We will see his commandments as a good thing that we will want to follow, and we'll want to, to be found faithful to him because of all he has done for us. And just like the Israelites needed to learn and carefully observe them, so should we as children of God. Every day, church, I challenge you to get in this book and to study what God has said for you and me. It will literally change your life. I do not believe that a Christian having the Holy Spirit live inside them can open up God's inspired, infallible, and inerrant word 
and study this word and seek to follow it. And God not radically change their life, change their mind, change their mindset, change their desires. I'm convinced it'll happen or they'll just quit reading it. They'll just quit reading it. But as a believer, we should desire it. I hope that is your case today. Again, follow God's word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for all you do for us. And God, I pray tonight that as we think about these these commandments, we think about this challenge that you have given to the Israelites. Help us, God, to be found faithful to learn your word, to follow your word. This was so serious. It, their obedience would affect their children and grandchildren, even great-grandchildren. But if they were faithful to follow your word, it would also have a positive influence for generations to come. As your hesed love would be, would be showered on them. And God, I pray it's the desire of everyone here that we follow your word and your commandments, that we are careful to observe them, that we learn them and we follow them. Oh, God, help us to experience that, that hesed love, that grace and mercy over and over again and in our families. I pray, Lord, tonight there's somebody here who may be lost, somebody here tonight who has not trusted you as their Lord and Savior, that, Lord, tonight I pray that they would make the greatest decision of their life and that is to turn their heart and life over to you. I pray that right now your Holy Spirit would convict them in their heart and show them that they need to be saved, that they need to be born again, and give them the courage, Lord, tonight to come into your kingdom, to come into your family. Oh, God, tonight I pray that if we've been convicted in an area tonight, I pray that, Lord, we would not dismiss that conviction. Lord, one of these commandments may have hit home with us. And, God, if it has, I pray that we would do business with you, that we would not uh, act like those who hate your word, but, God, those who love your word and would seek to respond positively to what you are calling us to do. I pray in this invitation you move in a mighty way, and we'll be careful to give you all the glory and all the honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.